1 to 6. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house whereby they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Acts chapter 2. Objectives and study in this chapter. To carefully consider the events surrounding the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. To examine Peter's first gospel sermon and the evidence presented in it for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to note the establishment and characteristics of the church in Jerusalem. We are not going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Vance Havner made that statement, and he was right. The early church had none of the things that we think of are so essential for success today. Buildings, money, political influence, social status. And yet the church won multitudes to Christ and saw many churches established throughout the Roman world. Why? Because the church had the power of the Holy Spirit energizing its ministry. They were a people who were ignited by the Spirit of God. That same Holy Spirit is available to us today to make us more effective witnesses for Christ. The better we understand His working at Pentecost, the better we will be able to relate to Him and experience His power. The ministry of the Spirit is to glorify Christ in the life and witness of the believer. John 16:14. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. And that is what is important. Ten days after Jesus ascended to heaven on the Jewish feast day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out as promised. With the sound of a rushing mighty wind and the cloven tongues like as a fire appearing above their heads. Those filled with the Holy Spirit began to speak in other tongues. Devout Jews visiting from other countries are attracted and amazed as they hear wonderful works of God proclaimed in their own language. Peter, standing with the rest of the apostles, explains that what has happened is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, 28-32, who foretold that God would pour out His Spirit in the last days. He then preaches Jesus of Nazareth to the crowd, reminding them of His miracles, their involvement in his death, and proclaiming that God raised him from the dead. As proof for the resurrection, Peter offers three lines of evidence. Number one, the prophecy by David who foretold of the resurrection, Psalm 16, 8-11. Number two, the twelve apostles as witnesses. And number three, the Spirit's outpouring itself, indicative of Christ's exaltation and the reception of the promise of the Spirit from the Father. In conclusion, Peter pronounces that God has made Jesus, whom they crucified, both Lord and Christ. Cut to the heart. The people ask the apostles what they should do. Peter commands them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. With many other words, he exhorts them to be saved, and about 3,000 souls gladly received his word and were baptized. Thus begins the church in Jerusalem, which continues steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. 
Signs and wonders are done by the apostles while the believers display their love and devotion through acts of benevolence and frequent worship. They enjoy the favor of the people, and the Lord adds to the church daily those that should be saved. So what is the significant symbolism in the Old Testament observance of Pentecost? We're going to look at that Acts 2 verse 1 says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. We're going to examine briefly the significant symbolism in the Old Testament observance of Pentecost. Acts 2 1 again, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. On the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament times, the Jews took individual grains of corn, ground them into flour, added oil and leaven, and made two loaves of bread. The loaves were then offered to the Lord along with the sacrifice of seven lambs without blemish, one young bullock, and two rams for a burnt offering, ten sacrifices in all to symbolize the perfection and completeness of Calvary, all to symbolize what took place fifty days after the resurrection of Christ. Pentecost always fell on the first day of the week, symbolizing, even in the Old Testament typology, the end of the Sabbath and the consecration of a new day for a new dispensation. All this was highly significant. The oil typified the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. For instance, the inclusion of leaven in the loaves was unusual, for leaven was rigorously excluded from other meal offerings because it is a type of sin. The ordinary meal offerings symbolized Christ, who was wholly free from sin. Leaven was included in the loaves of Pentecost, however, because those loaves typified the church, and the church has never been free from sin. Pentecost means 50th, because this feast was held 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, Leviticus 23:15-22. The calendar of Jewish feasts in Leviticus 23 is an outline of the work of Jesus Christ. Passover pictures his death as the Lamb of God, John 1:29 and 1 Corinthians 5:7. And the Feast of First Fruits pictures his resurrection from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15:20-23. Fifty days after first fruits is the Feast of Pentecost, which pictures the formation of the church. At Pentecost, the Jews celebrated the giving of the law, but Christians celebrated because of the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. The Feast of first fruits took place on the day after the Sabbath following Passover, which means it was always on the first day of the week. The Sabbath is the seventh day. Jesus arose from the dead on the first day of the week and became the first fruits of them that slept, 1 Corinthians 15.20. Now, if Pentecost was 50 days later, seven weeks plus one day, then Pentecost also took place on the first day of the week. Christians assemble and worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because on that day our Lord arose from the dead but it was also a day on which the Holy Spirit was given to the church. On the Feast of first fruits, the priest waved a sheaf of grain before the Lord, but on Pentecost, he presented two loaves. Why? Because at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit baptized the believers and united them into one body. The Jewish believers received this baptism at Pentecost, and the Gentiles believers received this baptism in the home of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. This explains the presence of two loaves of bread, 1 Corinthians 10:17. It is amazing when you start to see all the pictures of the church and Christ that can be found in these Old Testament feasts and observances. It is beyond comprehension how the Lord could bring all this about. 
and not just bring it about, but bring it about perfectly, and then bring it all together in the church age. And now looking back with an observant eye, you can see how God was planning for this very age of grace right from the beginning. We must not conclude that this 10-day prayer meeting brought about the miracles of Pentecost, or that we today may pray as they did and experience another Pentecost. Like our Lord's death at Calvary, Pentecost was a once-and-for-all event that will not be repeated. The church may experience new fillings of the Spirit, and certainly patient prayer is an essential element to spiritual power, but we would not ask for another Pentecost any more than we would ask for another Calvary. Now let's examine the arrival. Acts 2 verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. It was not the wind, but a sound like wind, something resembling a rushing hurricane perhaps. This sound was not of earth, but of heaven, and it was symbolic. It announced the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had come. Nothing was heard of this wind outside. It caught only the ears of those in the upper room. The church age was about to begin. The age of faith was dawning, for faith cometh by hearing, Romans 10:17. They heard the sound, but there was no other sensation. They heard this wind, but they did not feel it. There was no emphasis on feeling it at all, for it is faith, not feeling. That is the hallmark of the age. Acts 2 verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. It was not fire as a fire, but it looked like fire. This fire was another symbol of the Holy Spirit. Fire begins with a small flame, but it spreads. It can devour a forest or consume a city. It burns. There is a judgment element associated with fire. The lost will spend eternity in a lake of fire. It purges. In 1066, London was in the grip of the Black Death. In 1067, the great fire that purged the city of its scourge came. It illuminates. For countless centuries, fire was man's only source of artificial light. It enables men to work and walk in an otherwise dark world. It warns. It enables men to penetrate hostile regions where snow and ice reign. It smolders. Men can resist and quench ordinary fire, but Holy Spirit fire they can never put out. It will burn on quietly in the heart of a believer and will begin to spread again. Fire spreads, it burns, it purges, it illuminates, it warms, it smolders. All this and more is suggested by the fire of Pentecost, a fitting symbol of both the Holy Spirit and the church age. But it was not literal fire, for there is nothing to feel. Nor was the sign repeated, nor did the outside world see it. Now let's examine speaking in tongues. Acts 2 verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there is no more misunderstood manifestation of the Holy Spirit today than this. The gift of tongues in the early church was evidential in character. Its purpose was to attest to the Jewish people the simple but solemn fact that Judaism was obsolete and that Christianity had taken its place. The importance of tongues is related to the fact that for 2,000 years, if God had anything to say, think about this, for 2,000 years, if God had anything to say, 
he said it in Hebrew. From now on, he was going to reveal himself to all people, of all languages, not just the Jews. For 2,000 years, too, the Jews were especially chosen and privileged people. But from now on, God was going to bring the Gentiles into place of religious privilege and reach out to every kindred, all people, and all tongues across the entire world. Tongues was therefore an evidential gift, a sign for the Jews. Wherever tongues are mentioned, Jews are present, and unbelieving Jews are in the background. Not all people had the gift of tongues. It was strictly a temporary and transitional gift. Paul said it would come to an automatic end, 1 Corinthians 13.8. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish. Clearly, it was a temporary gift. The temporary sign of tongues seems to have terminated with the destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment of which it was a warning sign. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Temporary sign gift. Now let's look at the practicality of tongues. The languages and dialects of Asia, Africa, and Europe were instantly recognized. Nothing could have been more calculated to gain attention. Nothing will warm a man's heart than to hear the language, dialect, and accent of his boyhood. That is the practical point of tongues. The gift of tongues was not intended to make the disciples feel good, feel superior, or personally edified. It was intended to make them a powerful witness. It was a supernatural gift designed to arrest the attention of the Jewish people and rivet their attention on the gospel. Pentecost means prophecy was fulfilled. Acts 2.16, it means the last days have dawned. Acts 2.17, it means everyone can know God intimately and should also then make him known faithfully. Pentecost means Christ has ascended to the throne. Acts 2, 22-36. Acts 2, 16-17 says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. A promise fulfilled. We see a promise made in the book of Joel fulfilled in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, on a day of Pentecost, a massive promise was fulfilled. God promised in the Old Testament to pour out a spirit on all flesh, Joel chapter 2. During his ministry, Jesus taught about the coming of the Holy Spirit, John 14 through 16, and made the same promise in Acts 1, 4 to 5 and verse 8. Later, Paul referred to the promise of the Spirit, a reminder that he was long anticipated, Galatians 3, 14, Ephesians 1, 13. Acts chapter 2 is a wonderful reminder of God's promise-keeping nature. If God makes a promise, he's going to keep that promise. If God makes a guarantee, he's going to keep that. If God gives you a, a, a statement, he's going to go by that statement. God is never going to not keep a promise. God is true. You can count on God. He's going to keep his promises. Now let's look at the Old Testament presence. The Holy Spirit was present even in the Old Testament. The Trinity's always been here. But his work took a wonderful turn under the New Covenant. Paul tells us that after Jesus' ascension, Christ gave gifts unto men, Ephesians 4.8. Jesus has blessed his church by putting his Spirit in us and giving us spiritual gifts. 
Now, there is abiding significance to the Holy Spirit. We should not see these events and acts as something that came and went. Rather, what came and stayed. The day of Pentecost has abiding significance. The Spirit came and the Spirit stayed, and the Spirit is still here today. The day of Pentecost was like a major installation service. When a new president is sworn in, there is great pomp and circumstance. Well, Pentecost can be considered like the great installation service of the Holy Spirit. As when a president is sworn in, certain ceremonies or honors only happen on that day. They don't continue to happen in perpetuity. On the day of Pentecost, and for a season afterwards, there were certain extra indications of his presence and the arrival that no longer occur today. Acts 2.23 Him being delivered by determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter spoke of God's sovereign government here in Acts 2.23, for Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus himself said, No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. John 10.18 The death of Christ was foreknown of God in eternity past. Jesus is described as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 God knew that given a free will, man would sin. That his holiness would demand full payment for that sin. That his love would provide a free pardon for that sin. That in the fullness of time the Father would send the Son and the Spirit would prepare his body. That God would become incarnate in Christ. And that in the end, man would murder him. All that was foreknown and taken into account by God's determinate counsel. Man has solemn guilt. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God's foreknowledge does not absolve man from his fearful guilt. Men crucified Christ. It was the most wicked thing ever done on this sin-cursed planet. And they had done it. Their hands were stained with Jesus' blood. There was no escaping their guilt. They had murdered their Messiah, slain the very Son of the living God, there could be no greater guilt than that. Acts 2.27 Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. The word leave is literally forsake or abandon. At death, the Lord Jesus committed his spirit to his Father in heaven. His body, touched now only by loving hands, was tenderly anointed with costly ointments, wrapped in linen, and laid to rest in a brand new tomb, belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. His soul went down to hell, or Hades, the prison house of departed souls. He did not go there, however, as a victim of death, but as a victor. There he proclaimed the triumph of the cross and led captivity captive, Ephesians 4.8. He remained in those regions for three days and three nights. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 12:40. Then on the third day, as he so repeatedly said, he came forth in triumph. He would declare, I am he that liveth and was dead. And he could add, Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Revelation 1, 18. Now let's examine Acts 2, 38. Acts 2, 38. We need to have the proper definition of one little word in Acts 2.38 to understand exactly what this is talking about. Acts 2.38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, 
and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let me read that again a little bit slower. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You need to examine exactly what does Acts 2.38 mean. What does Acts 2.38 mean? And the whole key of understanding what Acts 2.38 means is the definition of one little tiny word in that verse. So the lack of properly defining and understanding the proper use of this word in this verse by examination of the use of the word in other locations in the New Testament has led to false beliefs about what one needs to do to be saved. Many people believe, based on the improper interpretation of Acts 2.38, that one needs to repent and also be baptized in order to be saved. Now, the, the word we're going to examine here and get the proper definition of in the context of this verse is a little, little word for, F-O-R, for. Let me read it again. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The whole key to understanding, properly understanding Acts 2.38 is to understand and know exactly what that little three-letter word for means. What is that word about? What does it mean in this context? If you misunderstand what that word means, you may think that baptism is part of salvation. You have to be baptized in order to be saved. But that's not what this verse says. And that would disagree with many other parts of the Bible. But that's the misunderstanding of this verse with the root misunderstanding of this verse being a misunderstanding of how that word is used and applied in the context of this verse has led many different religions, many different people across the world to think that you have to be baptized, that baptism is actually part of salvation, which is, it is not. So many view baptism as a necessary element in addition to repentance and faith. That completes the work of salvation. That is a misguided or wrong belief. As a proof text, they point to Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So what should we make of this verse? Was Peter the first proponent of baptismal regeneration? And does that mean that no one is truly saved until they've been baptized? Well, John MacArthur offers the following commentary on this verse. He says, Baptismal regeneration ignores the immediate context of the passage. Baptism would be a dramatic step for Peter's hearers. By publicly identifying themselves as followers of Jesus of Nazareth, they risk becoming outcasts in their society. Peter calls upon them to prove the genuineness of their repentance by submitting to public baptism. In much the same way, our Lord called upon the rich young ruler to prove the genuineness of of his repentance by parting with his wealth in Luke chapter 18. Surely, however, no one would argue from the latter passage that giving away one's possessions is necessary for salvation. Salvation is not a matter of either water or economics. True repentance, however, will inevitably manifest itself in total submission to the Lord's will. By implying or by assuming that baptism is a necessary step to our salvation, they are not true to the facts or spirit of Scripture as a whole. All through the book of Acts, forgiveness is linked to repentance, not baptism. Acts 3.19 Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Also Acts 5.31 
The Bible also records that some who were baptized were not even saved. Acts 8, 13 and 21 to 23. While still others were saved with no mention of them ever being baptized. Luke chapter 7, Matthew chapter 9, Luke chapter 18, and Luke chapter 23. The account of the conversion of Cornelius and his friends very clearly shows their relationship of baptism to salvation. It was only after they were saved, as shown by their receiving the Holy Spirit, Acts 10, 44-46, that they were baptized, Acts 10, 47-48. It was because they had received the Spirit, and hence were therefore saved, that Peter ordered them to be baptized. That passage clearly shows that baptism follows salvation. It does not cause it. Baptism follows salvation. It is not part of it. Baptism follows salvation. It does not cause it. It is not part of it. It does not complete salvation. It follows salvation. So why do Peter's words in Acts 2.38 seem to read as an endorsement of baptism being part of salvation? The confusion comes from understanding with our modern knowledge of the English language the way the Greek preposition eis ice is translated. While it is often translated for the purpose of, it can also mean because of. That is the sense it conveys in Matthew 12:41, as Jesus described how the people of Nineveh repented after hearing Jonah's preaching. That's the same sense it should be considered as in Acts 2:38. Peter exhorted the people to be baptized because of the forgiveness of their sins, not for the forgiveness of their sins. The same Greek word is used in both verses, and unless you dig a little deeper, you might get a little confused. But even so, that is why you must interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture, and in the immediate context it is found. If that simple rule is followed, no confusion or misunderstanding would result. Now I'm going to read Matthew 12:41, which has the same Greek word that's translated as for in Acts 2:38, but it's translated as at in Matthew 12:41. Out. I'll emphasize it when we get there. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jesus. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now Acts 2.38, the same Greek word is translated as for here, and I'll emphasize that. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Same Greek word I emphasize in both of these two preceding verses for a comparison. Now let's reread both those verses with the, we're going to substitute because of. Because that's what that Greek word means is because of. So I'm going to reread Matthew 12.41 and then reread Matthew 2.38. Same Greek word in both in Matthew 12.41. That Greek word is translated as at into English. And in Acts 2.38 that Greek word is translated as for into English. But that Greek word means because of. So let me read Matthew 12, 41. Instead of saying at, I'm going to say because of. The men of Nineveh shall rise and judge it with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented because of the preaching of, Jesus, of Jonas. And behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now Acts 2, 38, saying because of instead of for, because the Greek word means because of. Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one in you in the name of Jesus Christ because of the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Proper interpretation of that Greek word, because of. So when you read it, knowing that that Greek word means because of, those verses agree. 2.38 does not contradict the doctrine of salvation 
by faith alone, not of works. 2.38 does not suggest that you have to be baptized as part of your salvation. Acts 2.38 does not suggest that. Because that Greek word means because of. Now back when this uh, interpretation when King James is written, for meant because of in places like this. And people reading it would know that's what that meant. But now our modern interpretation of these words and modern definitions of the words and how we use them has changed slightly. So it, make, it causes a little bit of confusion here, but it means because of. And then Peter said to them, repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for or because of the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So to be clear, repentance is for forgiveness. Baptism follows that forgiveness. It does not cause that forgiveness. It is not a necessary element to salvation. Baptism is the public sign or symbol of what has taken place on the inside. Baptism is a public testimony for our salvation and not part of our salvation. It is, however, an important step of obedience for all believers and should closely follow our salvation.